a lot has happened. We've planted a couple of churches since the last time I was here uh, and uh, in our greater fellowship of churches, and we've seen a couple of boys commissioned to full-time ministry in our own family, and, um, and we've seen a daughter go through a divorce. I tell you that because I don't want to, I don't just want to, everybody can just put out their best, can't they? And, uh, but Solomon said it this way, he said, he said, in the day of prosperity, rejoice, what else are you going to do? But in the day of adversity, consider this, surely God has placed the one alongside the other. Have you ever read that? So in juxtaposition, that's the way my life is. I don't always have blessing, blessing, blessing without some burden, right? I don't always have burden, burden, burden without some blessing. That's the way it is until Jesus comes back, amen? By design, by design. And so uh, this is really, this, the title of this sermon is God Help Us to Return to You. Have you ever returned to a location that you, was very fond uh, to you when you were younger? When my wife and I were dating a quarter of a century ago, how's that for a line, dear? Uh, we, uh, I, I, took her to, uh, I took her to where I grew up, my happy place, my home, my house. And I think we have a picture of it here. This, this place uh, is all overgrown now. Uh, that's, we did everything out in that, that alley. To the right, we played wiffle ball out there. And, uh, but it's a crack house now. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's it, everything about this happy place, 20 years removed, it's not the same, not even close. It's run down, it's grown over, and seriously evil, we discovered, was all around the house. When the Jews returned to Jerusalem after a 70-year captivity, and just to, so that you know, because of their disobedience, God uh, dispersed the entire nation of Israel. The Assyrians took, took them over in 722 B.C. And in 586, in the third of several captivities, Nebuchadnezzar comes over from Babylon, takes the children of Israel to Babylon for what God prophesied through Jeremiah, a 70-year uh, captivity. And so, that, so when they returned, they, they returned the, the, most of these people returning, 50,000 of them, had never even seen it before. They'd only heard of Jerusalem. It's a brand new generation, born in Babylon, coming back to Jerusalem, expecting to see this land flowing with milk and honey. But they found it a picture of run down, grown over. It wasn't even close to what they'd had before. Evil was all around their former home. So I was just visiting my old home. The Jews are returning to live in Jerusalem again. But where to begin? Where would they begin? They've been gone for 70 years. Where to begin? The place was in a shambles. And I wondered this morning if the condition of the temple, which was in complete disarray, they couldn't even find the foundation, uh, describes maybe a few of you. Here is, I want, in a, a contemporary of this time was the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah told us something I want all of you to drink in this morning. This is a word from God to Zerubbabel, who was the one who actually led the, uh, this wave of Jews back uh, during the time of Ezra. Here is the phrase I want you to look at. Return to me, 
says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Just drink that in for a moment. Some of you just need to hear that today. You don't need to hear, you wicked sinner! God's going to put the beat down on you. No, you don't need to hear that. You need to hear, you need to hear a loving appeal from God to say, I know you're not what you used to be. I know the place doesn't look like it did, like it did a few years ago or whatever, or maybe even a few months ago. But I haven't left. I'm still here. Return to me, and I will return to you. But what does that look like? What does that look like, returning to God? That's the question I have. What does it look like? Again, it's been 70 years. Uh, what had happened was, after 70 years, God put it in the heart of a pagan king by the name of Cyrus the Great. And according to Josephus, when Cyrus took over in the area of Persia, Medo-Persia, Babylon, when he took over, an aged Daniel, the Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, approached Cyrus, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, with Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, which tells us 150 years before that man was ever born, his name twice in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 is stated to be the one who would free the Jews. When Cyrus saw this, he saw this as, oh my goodness, it's my duty then to let them go. And in Ezra chapter 1, he does that. He frees them up to travel, you see the map here, 900 miles uh, from the area of Babylon back to Jerusalem, a long, long trip. And so they're there, 50,000 of them. They come back to the promised land. The Jews had returned to the promised land. But here's the question, and that, and that is too, but would they return to God? Some of you, you've returned to church, maybe Christian activities, but have you really returned to God? So the title of the message is, God help us return to you. Because he's told us, return to me and I will what? I'll do the same, that's right. So if you're going to return to God, it involves rejecting, it involves rebuilding, it involves remembering, yes, remembering, and it involves rejoicing, which we just did a whole bunch of, amen? So Ezra chapter 3, look at the first three verses, here's what it says. When the seventh month came, remember that, that's a big deal, seventh month. The children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, that's the name you want to give your next boy, um, the son of Shealtiel uh, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God. They built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Here's the first thing I want you to note. If you're going to return to God, you do it by rejecting the sins that have held you. I'm not going to go through the litany of sins right now that may have held you, but you know what they are. They, these Jews have been held captive for 70 years. They've taken this four-month journey 
as we just showed you on the map, 900 miles, they weren't dating this idea. They weren't going back. I'm reminded of, I'm reminded 200 years later, Alec, the great Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in just a matter of very short period of time before he died in his 30s. But Alexander the Great was known to go into the harbor, one particular harbor, he, once all the troops were on, he burnt the ships right in front of the troops. And he looked at them and he said, we have to win. So if those boats represent your past, what needs to go up in flames right now? That's the question, huh? If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new, right? And Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, Whoever covers their sins shall not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. The great Southern Baptist preacher Vance Havner said something worth memorizing. He said, he said, we cannot expect God to forgive us our sins by taking them away. We can't expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them if we will not put them away by forsaking them. Yeah, go ahead and take a picture of that screenshot. Again, we cannot expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them if we aren't willing to put them away by forsaking them. That's a powerful statement. Talk about burning your boat. Our, our son Daniel, I told you a couple of kids were, a couple of our kids were commissioned. Our son Daniel was, uh, he's, our, he's the number nine out of ten. We have ten kids. Uh, he was not walking with God, but he was a Christian. His life had become a shambles. He was very articulate. He was literally a mini-me in many ways. He was, he was everybody, he was kind of the life of the party, but he was an ungodly boy, became an ungodly young man. And, but he was always breaking down and weeping whenever he get caught in his sin. So that was the only indication I had that he might be a Christian. But his life was a shambles. Looked like that house I showed you. But what happened was he was dating the class valedictorian. And we really liked her, but she wasn't a Christian. And one day, she was planning to be a doctor. And one day, they were having a conversation. She said, hey, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And Daniel goes, well, I don't have any plans for the rest of my life. She goes, well, that's why I'm dumping you right now. And she did. She dumped him. This guy who was not, who beating him off with clubs, that, uh, because he was a real handsome young man. Uh, was suddenly dumped. And let me tell you something. He was beside himself. And then he went by himself, knelt down next to the machine he was working on at work, and repented of his sin. He turned back to God. He returned to God. And guess what? The truth of Zechariah came true. Return to me, and I'll what? I'll return to you. And God just lit up his life. He went to a house where they were smoking marijuana, what his dad used to do, so he kind of took after. Anyway, enough of that. He goes in this house with about a dozen guys and declares, I'm not coming back here anymore. I'm following Jesus Christ. If you want to come with me, do so. And they began to curse him and persecute him. One guy says, that's awesome what you're doing. He became a Christian. We baptized him. He became a member of our church. There is another young man 
in the house that was looking up at Daniel. And you know what he did? I'll tell you later in the sermon. How's that? No, I'll tell you now. It was his brother. His brother said, Dad, I knew he was the real deal. And shortly thereafter, John Nemers, who was not a Christian, repented of his sin and became a Christian. And just three weeks ago, this is what we did with him. We laid hands on him. He and his family of five children, and he is now a pastor today. You return to God, and God will return to you. So, sec- so the first thing, again, if you're going to do that, you've got re- to reject the sins that held you. They-, they walked away from their past sins, those two boys. Secondly, by rebuilding your broken altar, okay? Uh, verse 2 tells us that the, the-, the Jews found the original altar. altar. It was visible in the remains, but that was about it. The point is that before everything else, even before the temple itself, and this is what Cyrus sent them back to build, rebuild the broken down temple. But before they could build the temple, they needed to erect the altar. It starts with the altar. I love this. Even without a building, verse 8 tells us they called this the house of God. Pretty cool. Why? Because the house is where one lives. God had said of the altar in Exodus 29, It's there I will meet with my people. The great Alexander McLaren said, there cannot be a temple without an altar. And there may not, but there may be an altar without a temple. God meets men at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house for his name. Today, there's only one altar, amen? The cross. And the writer of Hebrews said it. We have an altar, referring to the cross. That's our altar. The cross of Jesus Christ. We just sang about it. Listen, listen carefully to this. You can change a thousand things about your life, but if you never you'll never know God, much less return to Him. Unless you come back to the altar. You got to come to the altar. You don't listen, you don't need to rebuild the, the cross. You just need to return to it. Your life might be in ruins, but the cross remains upright in place and ready for your return. If you'll return to this. Return to me. I'll return to you. Thirdly, if you're going to return to God, you'll do so by remembering God's kindness in the past. Remember verse one said I told you to pay attention, it was the seventh month. Remember that? Now, if you're a Jew, you know what that means. If you're, most of us are probably non-Jews here, and it doesn't mean anything to you. But the seventh month was a big time. Lots of, lots of feasts going on, and none more celebratory than the one that's alluded to there uh, in a little bit. That is the feast, feast of booze or tabernacles. But look, look at verse 4. Let's start, pick it up where we left off. Verse 4. So here's what it says. Verse 4. And they, they kept the feast of booze or tabernacles, as it's written... And offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. After that, they regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the new moon and, and at all the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord 
was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, food, drink, oiled Sidians and Tyrans, and bring cedar trees and, uh, from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to, according to grant that they had from, they had as what was granted from Cyrus, king of Persia. Why did I emphasize the word offer or offerings over and over again? Eight times. Eight times in that, those couple of verses. Here's why. Because they hadn't even made one offering in 70 years. In 70 years, they had not made one offering to God. They'd been in Babylon. They were forbidden to do that. Forbidden. Historians tell us that in Babylon, there were 50 different temples to various gods. There were 180 shrines to Ishtar, the god of sex and the sea and all this. When you're not walking with God, you're not a living sacrifice. You're not an offering to God. But when you return to God, he returns to you, you can reoffer yourself as you should. Verse 4, Ezra specifies the Feast of Tabernacle or Booths. The rabbis called this simply the holiday. This was, this was party time. This was major party time. They, they would, even to this day, Orthodox Jews, they'll build little huts and stuff, and they'll live in them to remind them, to remind them, did I say to remind them? To remind them to remember what it was like. To remember that it was their sin that sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. It was their sin that kept them away from God. It was there, and it was at the same time, God, while they were in the wilderness, was providing for them manna, quail, all of that daily. 40 years in tents provided by God. In fact, Leviticus 23 says, Rejoice during the Feast of Tabernacles before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this festival to the Lord all by, here's the word, remembering. When Jesus talked to the church in Ephesus, he, um, remember them? He goes, you, you've got it all together. You've got the nuts and bolts together. You're doing this. You're throwing out people that don't belong to God, and you're doing this. And, and he's praising them. I mean, they're, it's not disingenuous. He's saying you're doing a lot of things good. But here's the one thing he said that you've done wrong. Remember what it was? You've left your first love. If you don't get that back, you lose your testimony, he said. They didn't get it back. I've been to that archaeological dig. There's no church. Here's what Jesus said to them. Here's how you get it back. He said, remember, repent, and redo. Here's, this is exactly what he said. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the first works. That counsel is the same counsel that everybody here needs today. You want to return to God so that God will return to you? Remember from where you have fallen. That's a point of reference. Nobody, I mean, nobody just falls off overnight, but there is a point. There is something that took place, some, some point of reference where you began to slide, something you looked at, some person you hung out with, some act you performed, some thought that got into your mind. Whatever it was, something was there. That's a point of reference. When Jesus said, Remember from where you have fallen. He's taking you back. He's asking you to remember. In fact, he says that. There's the word. Let's put it up there again. Remember. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're a Christian and you're in a funk right now, 
And I know that your pastor just, just took you there a couple of weeks ago. God bless him for that transparency. Amen? Then one of the keys to remembering is, is the blessings of the past. And the psalmist told us that. Psalm 143, David is in a funk. You can read it for yourself. But here's the gist of it. He says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. Have you ever read that? Remember. Return to me, and I will return to you. The forefathers of the Jews had spurned God's goodness. For these returnees, remembering involves sacrifice. It involved giving. And show me a Christian who doesn't give, and I'll show you somebody who might not be a Christian. I mean, these people were just ready to give, were they not? I mean, this is where we get our joy back. We don't, you don't sing songs like we just sang. I mean, you can sing it with vocal cords, but it's not coming from your heart if you're, still so, if you're in a foreign land. Do you remember what another psalmist said? How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? That's Psalm 137, verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? You don't feel like singing when you're somewhere where you ought not to be. Robert Robinson wrote one of the great songs that I'll bet many of you could start to sing. Come thou fount of many blessings, tune my heart to sing thy praise. You know, uh, prone to wander. Oh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it, seal it for thy courts above. Well, Robert Robinson wrote that song, but he, after doing so, went into that foreign land. Far from God. Got into a stagecoach one day and was sitting next to a young lady. Can you believe it? In the providence of God, she was meditating on the hymn that he had written years earlier. She handed it to him. She goes, oh, isn't this a beautiful hymn? Have you ever read this hymn? She goes, lady, I'm the unhappy man who wrote that hymn. And it was a result of that that he turned back to God. Return to me. I'll return to you. That's where some of you need to be. Finally, you want to return to God, you do so by rejoicing in what he has done. Rejoicing in what he's done. Look at verse 10. Skip down to verse 10. Uh, where we're, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. By the way, you didn't have a response. All your songs you sang today were directed to the Lord, which is great. But every once in a while, you sing songs that are like singing to one another. You ever notice that? And we're always just facing forward. I, at Sailorville several years, a couple of years ago, I, I split the congregation right in half, made everybody turn to one another. They just sang the song to one another. Because that's what's going on here. They were singing praises and exhortations to back and forth to one another. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool if you think about it. Maybe consider that. But I mean, that's what they're doing here. The foundation has been laid. It's been 70 years since they're in captivity. They're singing antiphonically back and forth to one another. By the way, if you, sing, if you read Psalm 135, that's, a, that's an antiphonical song. They, remember, it says, uh, uh, I can't remember how it puts it, Lord... Uh, after every line, it says, uh, they th he thanks the Lord for his mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord. And you're doing that back and forth. And that's what they were doing. 
And, and just notice again, verse 11, notice these emotions. They shouted with a great shout. You see it? They shouted with a great shout. And this is, this is what was happening at Easter time. While, while we were singing praises to God, we were baptizing individuals. People were singing and clapping and yelling and saying, hallelujah. I mean, because that's what happens when you see somebody's life's been changed. Amen? You don't sit there on your hands and go, oh, that's kind of nice. What in the world? If you have a spiritual pulse, you rejoice in that. That's what we did. People were in tears, singing, and clapping, and evidence of the power of God on full display. By the way, this is what Spurgeon said. Are there not periods of life when we feel so glad that we could dance for joy? If men are dull in the worship of the Lord our God, they are not acting consistently with the character of their religion. Sadly, not everyone was clicking their heels, raising their hands, and shouting for joy. You got to see verses 11. I can't make this up. It's out of the Bible. Look at verse 11. Skip down there, would you? So, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout. And they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had, was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, 116 years old and older, doesn't say that, but they were old. Old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many... Shout aloud for joy. So that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout and the sound of the people's weeping. I mean, can you believe this? This is what they call, in the Appalachian, they call this a cacophony. doesn't make any sense. Yelling, screaming, praising. That was happening. In fact, everybody was thinking, what is this noise we're hearing? Both Haggai and Zechariah confirmed that it was the older people who were complaining. It... Here's what they were complaining about. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. The Shekinah glory wasn't coming down, lighting up the sacrifice. No evidence of that. The dimensions, the dimensions of Solomon's temple, which had been torn down 70 years earlier, not even close. By the way, it's estimated that Solomon's temple today would cost in excess of $8 billion. But look at this. They're, they're looking, they're seeing, they, they, they're praising, they're singing, they're, wait a minute, look at the, they're looking at the outline of the temple. <laughs> it's not like, oh my goodness, not like it used to be. If you're one of those individuals, young or old, that complains that it's not like it used to be, it's never like it used to be. God was not happy with these old codgers, though, uh, Zechariah, and through Zechariah, he said to Zerubbabel, look, at, look what he said. This is God rebuking the old codgers. Look what he said. For whoever has despised the day of small things. This is the contemporary. This is what's going on. You're despising the fact this temple isn't as big as the other one? That's what God said. Isn't it enough that I'm back, that you're back, and I'm with you? Please say yes. You know, what joy it brought to me and my wife returning to Lakeshore City Church after a few years. Through all the changes 
and people and location, God is still here. And we rejoice in it. Amen? You know, it's hard to move forward when you're always looking back. Concentration on the back is the momentum killer of the present. Lake Star City Church, for all the things that God has done, good, bad, thick, thin, whatever you want to call it, like these happy Jews, rejoice! God is here. The gospel is here. Souls are being saved and will be saved. Some of you have been away for a long time. You've returned to church. But have you returned to God, really? Some of you are outside the family of God, even as we speak. You're not a Christian, and you know it. Talk about houses. Jesus said in Revelation verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and what? If anyone will open that door, let me in. I'll sit down with him. We'll have a meal. It'll never end. It'll never end. Until we sit and you sit down with the saints of old. But you have to get to a place in your life we're hearing, sensing, feeling, yes, feeling the sense of God speaking to your spirit that says, return to me? You haven't even come to me. Believe on my son. I don't have to prove my love for you anymore. I sent my son for you. He died for you on the cross. He rose again from the dead for you. And you know, I love the Apostle Paul who never got over that. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Watch this. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. People say, well, Jesus died for everybody. You know, you can argue that until the cows come home. I'm thankful he died for me. And we should never get over that. And I'm telling you who don't know Jesus, he died for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And for the rest of you, who you go back to your house that used to be pretty cool, it was your happy place in Jesus, you knew him, you trusted him, you walked with him, you got baptized, you joined the church, you did stuff. But you go back to that house now, it doesn't look so good right now. It looks a little like shambles. If that is you, would you just humble yourself right now and repent? Come to the altar. That's where God meets people, right? The cross of Jesus. You don't have to, you don't have to rebuild the cross. You just got to go back to it. Ask for forgiveness. He'll restore that. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you.